Welcome to How Life Changed, a podcast that features stories of real people and how their lives have changed as a result of COVID-19. I'm your host, John Noltner, and I'm glad you could join us. Change is a constant in life, but as a global community, we're now in the midst of unprecedented change as a result of the pandemic, and it's altering our work, home, and community lives in unexpected and profound ways. Each of us will experience this outbreak in our own unique fashion, each of us a single thread woven into the fabric of this historic event. Over the next 30 minutes or so, we'll explore just one of those threads, one person's story, and through that lens, hope to gain some human insight into the bigger picture of what's happening in our world today. This episode of How Life Changed is being recorded on Thursday, May 6, 2020. Today I'm talking with Krista Goodwin in Alberta, Alabama. Krista's a middle school teacher and mother of two. Her husband, Nate, was diagnosed with cancer on June 4, 2019, and he passed away at home April 9th. Krista, thanks for taking the time. Thank you. This is cool. <laughs> well, hey, I am, I am so sorry uh about your loss can you can you tell us a little bit about who nate was oh gosh um he used to say he was the jack of all trades but he wasn't good at any of them Mm -hmm. which wasn't true at all he was basically good at whatever he did great Mm -hmm. he was a leader um he's two years older than me so we had a lot of fun being the older man in the relationship, and um, he enjoyed the fact that he was married to an English teacher. I guess that's just a thing. And he was six foot two, and I'm five foot. So when we did our wedding photos, I had to stand on a stool, so it looked a little bit more even. He was a great father. Um, he studied to be a pastor, and so for the first part of our marriage, he was an associate pastor at a church in Georgia. And, um, I was the preacher's wife, which I was a preacher's kid. So it seemed like it kind of natural progression. Yes. Um, and then we decided to have a family and they just, anything he did, he just jumped in. Like he never, ever did anything halfway. So, um, as a dad, he changed diapers. He there, my, my daughter, when she was born, she had a lot of uh, special needs and things like that. And he would lay on the floor um, with his hand on her chest while she was sleeping in the crib just to know that she was okay. And he did that for about a year. Um, and next week, it will have been 18 years that we were married, but we've known each other for 20. Mm-hmm. And so half my life, I've been with him. So it's... Gosh, I don't know. There's so many things to say about him. He did so many different things, um, but he always brought um, a leadership aspect to it. And if he talked to you and asked how you were doing, he wasn't looking for the pat answer. Everything's fine. He was really good at looking through, um, sifting through the BS. I don't know if I can say that on Zoom, but he could. You can say anything you want on Zoom. Oh, gosh, don't tell me that. But he could, he could, he could tell you were lying, and so then he would keep pushing, uh, which could also get extremely irritating because 
he wouldn't let you just give him an answer. He would make you answer. And so it, he, he was someone who cared about everybody he came in contact with. I imagine you had some difficult conversations in the last year. It's been about a year that he was on this journey with cancer. Yes. He was diagnosed in June of last year. Um, Actually, while we found out while our kids were at space camp in uh, Huntsville. Hmm. And so um, we didn't know how bad it was at the time. But, you know, whenever you hear the word cancer over the phone, it just changes the way you view everything. And so we didn't tell our kids until after they had gotten done with space camp because we wanted them to have one more week of no cancer. Because uh, that, after that, that was everything. Um, you woke up and went to sleep knowing that that was there. So we decided that, you know, just like we'd done everything else, we were going to be all in about it and um, do whatever it took. We weren't going to have any regrets. Um, if there was a treatment out there, we would go. We'd find it, and if we could make it happen, we would. So Nate was also a scenario guy. So he always had a plan A, B, C, and D. And usually, you know, it didn't get to D because A was a pretty good plan, so he stuck with it anyway. (laughs) Um, But so we'd have lots of conversations, and some of them really, really hard. Um, And I was reading something somewhere where it says, because you have those conversations, you start what's called anticipatory grief, um, where you actually start to grieve before they're even gone. So a lot of the conversations we had were, what was I going to do if he didn't make it? Um, what would I do with the house? What would I do with the kids? Um, and because he was the way he was, he made it to where we were, we were going to be fine. Like I would usually tell him, I said, you know, I'm not worried. And so sometimes I felt like I might've been lying when I said that, but, um, I was genuinely not worried through the entire time, we just had people that were blessing us in amazing ways almost every day, it felt like. Um, and so leading up to the virus, um, you know, we were already in quarantine since like August because the kids and I, he couldn't get sick. He was on chemo. And if he got sick, a cold would, you know, take him out. So we would come home from school. I'm a teacher and my kids are in school. So we pick up all sorts of stuff. So we'd have to take a shower. We had a certain path that we walked in the house before we came anywhere near him. And so I I feel like I've been living with the virus for a long time. (laughs) Yeah. You had some skills practiced before the rest of us needed to do it. Yes. And I was already a germaphobe. So that was, I felt, I told somebody once that I felt like I've been preparing for this pandemic my entire life. So. <laughs> You're well equipped in that way. I, yes. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, so then I gather COVID-19 made, made some of your process more difficult at the end for the last month or two. Yes. Um, because anytime he started to have some kind of symptom or something like that, we had to uh, think about it with the mindset of, well, I don't know if we want to take him to the, the hospital or the ER because then he might get sick. Um, and we were fortunate because he had already been on home health care. So we had nurses that were coming to our house. Um, and most of those nurses were already um, tested for the virus. And then they also had all these protocols. And 
it felt like every time they came, there was a different protocol that they had to follow. So it got, they got towards the end, it got really tricky, even with the nurses coming to our home because we never left, but they would go to their patients and then they would come right back home. Probably the hardest, the the moment I realized how difficult the virus was, was two weeks before he died. Um, We had to go to the hospital because he was retaining fluid. And so we wanted to to get him there to see if they could give him some relief. At that point, they'd only told us he had um, three months. Uh, So we get to the ER and I'm with him and they're about to admit him. And I was in one of the rooms in the ER with him for the longest time. And then as we're walking back to the room, I'm walking by him with the gurney and the nurse stops us and walks backwards, goes and talks to somebody and comes back to me and tells me, um, I'm sorry, I can't, I can't let you go with him to the room. Um, we shouldn't have even left you, let you go into the ER. So um, I'll get him situated and everything like that. And you can uh, FaceTime him or call him. And so... I had to leave my, you know, dying husband at the hospital. And I just remember sitting in the parking lot. I called my dad and I just cried. I thought about spending the night in the parking lot just so I would be there. Um, But while I was not there, that's when he found out it wasn't three months anymore. It was two weeks. Um, And so he had to call and tell me over the phone that I needed to call hospice and um, get that process started. So I had to do all of that while he was in the hospital by himself. And I was here um, with the kids Hmm. and I had to, I had to decide if we wanted to do hospice at the house or if we wanted to have him go um, to some of the facilities around here where they could keep him comfortable. Um, And that really wasn't ever an option because i we've never been apart from each other for very long at all. And, um, the home we live in is who he is. We bought a really awful house and gutted it ourselves and redid it with the help of family. And so he's everywhere inside of these walls and it didn't seem right for him to go anywhere else. Um, and then the idea of him being left alone and the kids and I not being able to get to him at the end was just, I, I couldn't do that. So, and the, the virus forced a lot of people to make those decisions. Yeah. Um, so. Hmm. I'm so sorry. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, talk a little bit about how others were able to offer their support for you during this time when they couldn't really come over, when they couldn't really be in your presence? Well, that was a challenge in itself because we were all very social. We have small group at our church and it's a group of people that basically we do life with. So sometimes it's like we see each other two or three times a week, church and then small group and then get together. We live on the water and we all love boats and stuff. And so it's like, Hey, we're going to the beach. Oh, let's go hang out. That sounds great. And it's just, you know, more than 10 people. So that's the trick. Um, but I just had people drop things off at the house. I ended up having to put a cooler on my front porch, um, because people would, uh, come drop off something in the cooler and text me and say, Hey, it's there. And I'd wave from the window. 
Um, and then I'd open it up and, you know, there are all sorts of little treasures. Um, I had people that do meal trains. I had people that um, gave us money through PayPal, through um, Venmo, through whatever, like just, it felt like every time I opened up my mailbox, there was a card or something in there from a person. And it, it, it literally felt like every single day there was something there. Um, and then we had people that did stuff around the house. My neighbor just mows my lawn all the time. Um, and you just, it was very, uh, some things were very small and then some things were really big and it was, it was, um, we didn't get to have a funeral, but my friends, uh, they had lost a little girl and he told me that what we were experiencing in this time with people dropping stuff off and giving us letters and emails and calls. He said, that's, that's what happens at a funeral. So it was like people got to tell us how much they loved us and not wait until it was too late to tell us that. Hmm. It was amazing. <laughs> it sounds like you've got a good, uh, a good crew around you. Uh, yes, it's more of a, um, you know, they say it takes a village and one of my aunts said that doesn't seem like it really applies to you because your village is a little bit larger than a normal village. So it's more like I have a country and it's just a really amazing group of blended people all over the United States. It's pretty amazing. Hmm. Yeah, you're lucky. I I am. (laughs) So you weren't able to have a funeral. What are your what are your plans to say goodbye to have closure? Or is there some other way that you've already um, done that? He had already made the decision that he wanted to be cremated anyway, um, which is what a lot of people have had to do with all of this because you can't do a funeral. I knew the logistics didn't make any sense because um, down here, at least at that time, you could only have 10 people at the funeral at a time. And so I was telling somebody that would be absolutely horrific for the kids and I, because then we would have to wait hours because there would be so many people that would come to the funeral. Um, and we'd have to wait for every 10 people to go through. (laughs) And that wasn't healthy for my kids, especially. So we decided we were going to do a celebration of life when all of the virus stuff is done and we can all get together. Um, because it's going to be a big party. He wanted it. He already knew what he wanted. He didn't like funerals anyway. He said they were depressing. I said, well, that's, yes, that's, that's what they are. But, um, so he said, I just want all my friends to get together who've never met each other because we have friend groups in different places. Um, church, hand camp, all these different areas, college, And he said, I just want everybody to get together and I just want everybody to have fun. Everybody go to the beach, go on the boats, do something really, really entertaining and just know that I'm in a better place and I just want you guys to get to know each other. So I told him that's what we were going to do. And then it started looking like (laughs) that was never going to happen. And so my friend from college had uh, presented the idea of, well, you guys need a little bit of closure right now. Um, otherwise it feels like we're frozen in time. When you have a funeral, people move on. The people that are grieving, they still have their, their grief, but at the same time they can go to the store or they can go to the beach and they can escape to be able to, you know, lessen that. Um, but we haven't had the funeral. 
So we're just stuck. So she said, well, why don't we do something right now on Facebook um, and use that social media platform as a place where people can share their memories and their laughs and messages to you and the kids so that right now you can have that to be able to add to your days, like laughing about it. I put up the story of when we got engaged, which is so very embarrassing. But anyway, um, you, wait, 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 wait! You can't, you can't say that and not tell oh the story. Oh my gosh! Well, I mean, you posted it on Facebook. I know it's already out there, isn't it? It, it oh, is. Geez. So I was a. Uh, senior in college and I was about to go into teaching. And so we had been dating for a while and he had told me that he had a big surprise for me and it was right around a Christmas banquet. So I was really excited and I um, thought, Oh, he's gotten me a ring. He knew I wanted a ring and all that kind of stuff. So I found out in a roundabout way, we went to a Bible college and you had to get permission to be able to have people come and stay who weren't part of the campus. And so I found out that my best friend was coming in for the weekend and she attended Auburn university. And I thought, well, that's, you know, not much of a surprise. It's not a ring, but that's cool. I get to see my best friend. And (laughs) so I didn't think anything of it after that. So I got ready for the Christmas banquet. We get in the car and my um, husband, said, well, I, um, the, the surprise is in the trunk. And I just remember looking at him and I, you know, I'm, I don't think of myself as a genius, but I mean, I'm not, I'm not a a complete idiot. So I was sitting there, he says it's in the trunk. And the first thing that comes into my head is, oh my gosh, Catherine is in the trunk and we're going to open it and she's going to be in there. So we're driving to this place. It's like 45 minutes from where we go to school. We go over some railroad tracks. And when we hit the railroad tracks, I looked at Nate and I said, man, if there was a person in that trunk, that would really hurt. And he was like, yeah. We kept driving. And I mean, I I don't know what I was thinking at that point. So we get to the banquet. I think she was going to pop out of a Christmas tree. She never shows up. So then we get into the car on the way back. And I proceed to like just land blasting because I don't have a ring and I need a ring. And if I don't have a ring, then I'm going to get to school and it's going to be really awkward and all that kind of stuff. And he's like, I don't have any money for the ring. And meanwhile, the ring is in his pocket on his pinky and he's just rolling it around on his pinky while I'm yelling at him um, that I need a ring. I know. I I don't know why he proposed after this anyway. So he takes me to the place where he first kissed me and where he had told me he loved me. And he made me stay in the car and he got out of the car, went to the truck and or trunk and did some fiddling around and then brought me out. And in the trunk were a dozen red roses, um, a card from my mom and a card from his mom. And then there was a little bitty plaque in a frame. And he said, here you go. So I looked at it and I did, I was like, Oh, that's real sweet. And I'm, you know, still like, I don't know what I was expecting. And he said, no, you need to read it. And it was actually an engagement announcement from um, his parents and my parents announcing our engagement. And as I'm reading it, he gets down on one knee and he proposes. And he had been 
putting it together for, I don't even know how long. And my best friend was there, but the only reason she was there, she told him that when he proposed, she wanted to be there to celebrate with me. So she was at a coffee and tea bar waiting for us. She said, I'm not I in the trunk love, of the car, not in the trunk of the car. No, she's <laughs> like, I don't, I don't think I love you that, <laughs> that much, <laughs> but he asked me to marry him anyway. So I, you know, and you said, yes, I did say yes. Yes, I did. I, it took me a little mi- a minute, but yes, I did say yes. Oh, gosh. I love it that was story. Thank you. Oh, it, was <laughs> it was horrible and it was wonderful. All at the yes, same time. All at the same time. <laughs> uh, hey, um, what, are, what are your plans going forward? You're going to stay in that house. You're going to keep teaching middle school. You're going to stay um, in that community. I'm- I'm I'm gonna stay here. I love where we live. Um, I grew up here, and then we moved away. And Nate had said he would never ever live here. <laughs> and then after our daughter was born, um, we just had a lot of. Um, I had a lot of issues with depression and things like that. So we moved back here to be closer to my family. And then uh, it grew on him here. And he said, well, fine, if I'm going to live here, I'm going to be on the water. And so he found us a house on the creek. Um, He showed me the creek first before he walked me in the house so that I would see that it had potential. Right, because it needed some work, you said. Oh, my gosh, it was awful. The house was so bad on the inside, it made the property worth less. (laughs) So we got a deal on it and then we gutted the house in like three months and moved in. I mean, it, it was a whirlwind summer that summer. So. Well, what I can see behind you, it looks lovely. It's, it's my, our retirement home. So I'm not going anywhere. (laughs) Yeah. Hey, what, uh, Krista, what do you think Nate would want us all to learn from this COVID journey that we're all in? Um, it's a reset. Like it's, it's a, um, his priority was always God, family, and then everything else. And so right now, everything else, you can't do it anyway. So focus on what's the most important thing in your household. Um, he, uh, there's, there's so many things that you can find around you and you can also do something for others. So we've been, we lived, have lived our life where if we felt like somebody needed something, then we would figure out a way to help them however we could. Um, And that doesn't have to change, even though there's a virus and we can't leave our home and some of us are, you know, terrified and others are just rolling with it. Um, That doesn't mean you can't be a a good person to people. You can't help people. and that's, that's where, and we've had people that are doing drive-by donuts now. So like they just, um, my daughter went around and delivered donuts to her classmates and it just made people smile. And I think, I think he'd want us to, to do more of that, to, to not be stuck. And um, he made it clear to me that I couldn't be stuck crying all the time because that wasn't, you know, that wasn't how we lived. And so that wasn't how he'd expect me to live after. So the virus has really made it difficult, but in some ways a little bit easier because I feel like everybody is frozen with me. <laughs> yeah. And 
I think one of the things too, is we're all grieving something and the stages of grief, you know, there's so many different things that you go through, but every person has lost something in some form or fashion with this. And as a teacher, I have students that haven't been able to graduate from college or from high school or, you know, big things that were really big for them. And I had to remind them that my loss doesn't trump their loss. All of us have lost something and everything's big for us. So I think we need to give people a lot of grace. And it's like, you can't, you can sit around and just feel sorry for yourself or you can figure out a way to make somebody else smile or figure out if there's a need, then find a way to make it happen. Help them. Yeah. However you can do it. Everybody gets to grieve something and it's not a competition. It's not something that we have to, Oh, well I lost my husband. So what did you lose? Well, when I was in high school and I graduated from high school, that was the biggest event that had ever happened in my life. So to lose that would feel like a death and you can't minimize somebody else's grief. It never works. Well, Hey, Krista, I want to thank you for taking the time to talk today. I'm sorry for your loss. I'm glad that you've got rich community all around you. And thanks for sharing a little bit about that today. Thank you. Yeah. You take good care. All right. You too. Bye-bye. Thanks for joining us for How Life Changed. I'm your host, John Noldner, and I look forward to seeing you next time. How Life Changed is a series produced by A Piece of My Mind, a multimedia arts project that uses storytelling to rediscover what connects us. You can find A Piece of My Mind on Instagram at A-P-O-M-M Stories, on Twitter at A Piece of My Mind 1, that's the numeral 1, Facebook and YouTube at A Piece of My Mind. Peace is always spelled out P-E-A-C-E. And you can find all of those links on our website, A-P-O-M-M dot net. That's the acronym for A Piece of My Mind dot net. Listen to this podcast wherever you get your podcasts and tell a friend to listen too. Together, we'll see the world in new ways, one story at a time.